0: Uh, So, Felix, this week, we have an interview with Timothy Fry on his book, um, Weak Strongman, which is about Putin. And um, I thought I'd ask you, you know, what do you think about all this Putin mania that we're subjected to off and on?
1: Well, basically, I have three reactions to the Putin mania. Uh, The first is I remember the first time that I heard uh, George Bush talk about looking into his eyes, and seeing his soul and how it was a good thing. And then it seems like every single American uh, political figure who has met him has looked into his eyes and seen his soul, um, but they've read different things there. Um, so so that's number one. Uh, the second thing is that I have a deep and abiding love for Putin kitsch. Um, I think it's wonderful and entertaining uh and then the third thing, which is like the most serious thing, is that I think above all Putin mania indicates to me a failure to understand Russian political realities and moreover a kind of lack of creativity and lack of desire in understanding uh the Russian political landscape
0: yeah, for sure you know i I often um and I think i I, I mentioned this in the interview at one point with, with Timothy Fry that we this obsession with putin and this interest in putin and ascribing all sorts of like both dark and and omnipotent powers to him is is makes us all unwitting agents in the putin cult in many respects
1: absolutely yeah it's like he's some kind of wizard
0: (laughs) yeah he's like voldemort right (laughs)
1: yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: and uh and i should i should uh, since you do love profess since you profess your love for putin kitsch um, I would like to remind listeners that uh, there is an interview on the SRB podcast with Alison Raleigh, who wrote a whole book about Putin Kitchen America. So if you'd like to hear more about, you know, not only just the the figurines and various objects one can buy with Vladimir Vladimirovich's, you know, visage, um, you could also learn about the number of slash fiction that has been written about putin uh you know both sexual and otherwise
1: and i can only say i have nothing but respect for the people who are writing that slash fiction like the audacity and creativity it takes to produce that is uh i don't know it boggles the mind so good for them
0: yeah i i I really appreciate the the tenacity to do it right that the dedication to uh to spin these wild yarns
1: (laughs) yeah like i you know it takes uh it takes some some guts i'll say that (laughs)
0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. And as you may know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB table of ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to hop on board and support the podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join all of us on the table of ranks. So uh, Felix, why don't you introduce Timothy Fry for us?
1: Timothy Fry is the Marshall D. Schulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy and co-director of the International Center for the Study of Institutions and Development at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He's the author of many books on post-Soviet Russia. His new book is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Timothy Fry. All right. So,
0: um, very excited to talk to you. Um, you know, you're you're well known in the field of uh, Russian politics. Um, and you've been studying it and writing it a very long time. But for those of you who may not be familiar with you, why don't you why don't we start by having you introduce yourself?
2: I'm Tim Fry. I'm the the Marshall Shulman Professor at uh, Columbia University and the co-director of the international center for the study of institutions and development at the higher school of economics in moscow
0: you know one of the things that that struck me in the beginning of their your book you you go through your own personal history and your relationship with russia and your involvement with it and in the late 1980s you were a self-described information warrior which i would imagine nowadays sets off all sorts of uh, lightning bolts when people read that but um, Why did you call yourself that? What did you do, and and what is your? How did that experience shape your approach to Russia?
2: So, in the late 1980s, I worked on a cultural exchange um, program in six Soviet cities on Informatika Shah, which was Information USA, and it's part of a long exchange between the Soviet Union and the U.S. that began in 1959 and is most famous in the Nixon-Khrushchev kitchen debates. And it was a cultural exchange program where 24 Soviet citizens came to the U.S., 24 U.S. citizens went to the Soviet Union and uh, interacted with the ordinary citizens of both countries. So for about 15 months, I stood at a stand for uh, you know, six hours a day answering questions about life in the United States from uh, ordinary uh, uh, Soviet citizens. And in a lot of ways, it was the best job I'll ever have. It was from 19, uh, late 1987 through early 1989, so I was able to witness the arc of Perestroika and Glasnost from Tbilisi, Tashkent, Irkutsk, Menetogorsk, Leningrad, and Minsk for about two months apiece. And it was really a defining experience uh, for me. Uh, It made me very skeptical of kind of vague abstractions about what the Russians think or what Soviets are really like because every day uh, before my eyes and there would be intense discussions and disagreements among the, uh, the people who came to our exhibit. Uh, even more so than uh, what I was trying to tell them. Uh, they were really interested in what each other had to say. And often we had these really heated discussions that were three-way, where there would be two sides arguing in the audience, and I would be trying to, to interject as well. Uh, so it was just a really exciting, uh, a really exciting job.
0: Is there a question or an incident that, that has stuck with you all these years?
2: Well, the, the book outlines um, some of the uh, some of the better ones. Um, although there, you know, I've been tempted to write a whole book about the experience because it, it you know it was such a um, interesting time to be there. Uh, one that I outline in the book. Is is a kind of simple one, but someone came up to me and said, uh, uh, you know, I understand that you have uh, unemployment in the United States in the capitalist country, and uh, we don't have that here, and we know that unemployment is really bad. Uh, at the same time, we know you you have these things called the want ads. You know, how can both of these things be true? So it was a great uh, opportunity, you know, to explain about. How unemployment actually works and how people experience it for some period of time often. They get some benefits from the state for for a certain period of time. And uh, it also shed light on the agency that Soviet citizens had in trying to decipher the world around them in that they knew that much of what they were being told in the Soviet media was inaccurate and was propaganda, but they also knew that it had some element of truth. And you know what Soviet citizens then and what Russian <laughs> citizens do today is spend a lot of time trying to figure out what parts of uh, the media are credible and uh, w- which parts are not. Felix, do you want to go ahead and ask?
1: So your book is called Weak Man, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Um, so we know there have been many, many books on Putin and the nature of Russian governance. So why did you feel another book uh, was necessary? So that yeah, to write one yourself.
2: So it's a very good question. Uh, the and I did try to differentiate the book from the sea of, of of Putin books out there. And it's a and it's a funny book in that it's not really about Putin. Uh, the whole point of the book is that we need to look beyond Putin uh, to understand how he interacts with uh, his inner circle who represent various interests within the state and society, and also with the mass public, and how Putin's attempts to satisfy these two groups um, uh, are often uh, uh, very it's very challenging to satisfy these two groups, often because they have competing. Uh, interests. So it's not really a book about Putin. It's more about how autocrats try to stay in power by resolving inherent conflicts in the systems uh, that they manage. And you know the book is also different in that it takes a, a much more comparative approach. You know, I view Russia through the lens of um, you know comparative politics using uh, the category of a personalist autocracy and emphasize the ways in which Putin's autocracy resembles autocracy in other other, uh, former Soviet states, uh, Turkey, Hungary, Philippines, uh, Venezuela under Chavez. And I think that distinguishes it from a lot of books on Putin and Russia that really focus on Uh, the domestic sources of uh, governance in Russia. And I wanna pull that pendulum back to say, look, there's also a a lot of uh, practices in Russian politics that we can see uh, in other settings as well. Um, The book is also different in that it's, it's really written as an explainer book where I try to translate what I think is this really impressive body of social science research to answer some of the basic questions we have about Russian politics, about Putin's popularity, about elections, the economy, foreign policy. The source material for the book tries to hit this sweet spot of um, letting people know about works that have been very important in political science and in sociology uh, about contemporary Russia and translating them for a general audience, um, because there's been a lot of terrific research on Russia, but it's had really little impact on public debate. And finally, uh, you know, I also wanted to highlight some of the personal experiences that I've had, first being this exhibit guide uh, in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, I worked for a while, uh, for a couple of summers while I was doing my dissertation in the Russian Securities and Exchange Commission. uh, I've been running this center at the Higher School of Economics for the last decade. And I sprinkle anecdotes from those experiences in the book, not just to give it more color and make it more readable, um, but also because I think it gives me some insights into how Russia works that are hard to come by otherwise.
0: Given that you you're combining all of these, the personal experience, uh, the comparative approach, the scholarship that's out there, what is the story you're trying to communicate to that you know regular audience?
2: Well, I mean, the headline of the book is really we need to look beyond Putin to understand Russian politics because so much of our uh, debate about Russia in the United States focuses on Putin and often reduces Uh, politics in Russia to what Putin thinks and what his worldview is. And I really wanted to push um, beyond that. But there's another story that I want to tell in the book, and I think this has been underappreciated, or maybe I didn't do a good enough job selling it. Um, But over the last 15 years, there's really been a renaissance in the study of Russian politics in political science. The study of autocracy has become one of the hottest areas in the field uh, for reasons I think we all well understand and regret. Um, uh, But unfortunately that has made Russia a really interesting case that people who study autocracies and live in autocracies uh, want to learn more um, about. And Russia has been a great place to study autocracy relative to lots of other autocracies. We can do much more high-quality surveys in Russia than we can in, say, uh, Iran, uh, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Belarus. Um, There are terrific scholars uh, of Russia who are based in Russia, many of whom have left, but some of whom have stayed as well, who provide a unique perspective. There's also really high-quality long-form journalism on Russia by people like Josh Yaffa and others um, that add uh, uh, to the um, uh, uh, add to the debate as well. But the st- one story that I really wanted to tell was how this new generation of scholars trained after the end of the Cold War had been able to take advantage of the big data opportunities uh, that Russia offers to scrape the web and use administrative data to kind of ferret out ties between business people and politicians. How my colleagues and I have been able to use public opinion surveys to figure out whether or not respondents are lying when they answer the question about Putin's approval rating. How um, uh, uh, scholars have tracked graffiti in Moscow and its location and its content to figure out how the regime is trying to deal with uh, opposition. Uh, and you know, this research has been really interesting and in the political science field, there are more articles being written about Russian politics uh, now, you know, probably than any time since you know, the, the early, early 1990s. Now, whether or not these you know, propitious conditions for studying Russia will continue in the future is very much an open question, given you know, the recent uh, autocratic, uh, even more autocratic turn uh, in Russia. Uh, but there is this really rich body of research on everything from elections to corruption, uh, to the economy, to foreign policy. And I wanted to get that uh, information out to the broader public.
0: I, I want to ask you what you mean by autocracy, because the historian in me, of course, thinks of, you know, 18th century France or even imperial Russia and, and other, you know, early modern societies. So what what makes Russia and these other states uh autocratic?
2: The main thing that, that political scientists look for is whether or not leaders are chosen through relatively free and fair elections. Uh, and of course, you know, we can debate in the, uh, in the main about uh, what we mean by free and fair uh, elections. But as we look at the uh, international comparisons, the databases that try to rate countries on the fairness of their elections and how autocratic or democratic they are, um, uh, there's an awful lot of overlap. There's much more agreement and very high correlations among scholars using somewhat similar uh, indicators um, uh, about whether or not we want to consider a country an autocracy. Now a couple points are important you know for a long time in political science uh, autocracy was just this residual category of everything that's not democratic and one of the advances of the literature in the last 15 years is to recognize that there are various types of autocracies and they have different patterns of politics. There are stark differences in the way that one-party regimes like the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, you know, Mexico under the PRI uh, operate compared to military regimes like we see in Pinochet's Chile or in contemporary Myanmar and kind of personalist autocracies which we see uh, a lot in the former Soviet Union with Russia being perhaps the exemplar of the case. And on many dimensions, it's kind of personalist autocracies are the most problematic in that they tend to have higher levels of corruption than one party or military regimes. They uh, tend to uh, have more volatile policies. Uh, They tend to be more likely to use repression and political transitions from these kinds of personalist autocracies are often fraught because there's no soft landing pad for the leader. Whereas in one party regimes, uh, the leader can retire to the party or a diplomatic post uh, somewhere, or in a military regime, the military leader can go back to the barracks. In a personalist autocracy, there's no real soft landing pad. Uh, So as we look broadly, we see that um, transitions from personalist autocracies tend to be more violent and less likely to lead to democracy.
0: Your title of your book is "Weak Strong Man," um, and and you, you write that Putin is indeed a strong man, but he's weak. It, what do you mean by that? Because most people, particularly in the popular imagination, would see a contradiction in those two terms.
2: Yeah, it's you know I struggled with the title of the book because the title of the book is much less nuanced uh, than I think the text of the book is. That's not uncommon. Uh, uh, no one's going to buy a book called The Kind of Constrained Strong Man or The Moderately Constrained <laughs> Strong Man. Uh, so, um, failing to come up with uh, anything better, uh, we settled on a weak strong man. And uh, I don't use the term as an analytic category to say, you know, Xi in China is a strong strong man and Putin is a weak strong man. Uh, the idea is simply to point to the constraints and trade-offs that personalist autocrats like Putin have to make. Uh, because the common impression is that because you face no serious, open political opponents, uh, that you are omnipotent. Uh, but you know, as students of autocracy have known for a long time, uh, it's very difficult, uh, uh, to get bureaucrats, uh, uh, business people uh, to do the things that you want them to do, even though you have all of these levers of power. And one of the points I I, I highlight in the book is that Putin faces all of these difficult trade-offs between satisfying his inner circle and being uh, popular and generating support among the mass public. And a good example comes on corruption, where you know, Putin, and like most personalist autocrat, uses corruption to reward the inner circle so they continue to support him. At the same time, he can't allow them to steal so much that the economy tanks and people come on the street. Uh, and you know, if we think about elections, uh, You know, Putin, like other autocrats, manipulates elections in order to be sure that they actually win them. Uh, But at the same time, they can't manipulate the election so much uh, that they reveal weakness um, because people think the results are just uh, not credible. Uh, In foreign policy, we see Putin like uh, uh, Erdogan, like uh, Orban in Hungary, playing up anti-Westernism to rile up the more conservative sectors of society, but not so much of this actually causes the conflict with the West. So I think by recognizing these difficult trade-offs um, that Putin has to make, this is a very different picture than I think of, you know, most treatments of Putin, which see him as just, you know, getting up in the morning, uh, issuing a few orders, uh, a compliant bureaucracy fulfills them. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, uh, all these tasks have been checked off the checklist.
0: You know, that's that's one of the features that, that strikes me about, you know, speaking of Russia in particular, that it's really the, the form of governance is really about trying to regulate the margins right just as you said like you know you have to allow the elite to to steal but you can't allow them to steal too much and every once in a while you have to make an example of somebody to reset the rules of the game right it's about defining the parameters of acceptable theft um <laughs> uh and so given this like what are some some of the the features of of russian governance that strike you as key, that's particular to the Putin system or even general in terms of your comparative approach, particularly in trying to actual govern govern the domestic politics of the country. Because, you know, one of the things that particularly is interesting to me is exactly what you ended with. Like he gets up in the morning, he sets some, you know, gives some decrees and you have a compliant bureaucracy, but we know, you know, both present and past Russia. Bureaucracy doesn't necessarily do what they're told, <laughs> um, so h- how does that work in in this in the domestic sphere?
2: Yeah, I have this quote in there from uh, you know Khrushchev. Uh, you know, Russia is like a tub of dough. You know, you put your hand in uh, and think you've solved everything, but then when you pull it out, the dough just moves back to its original form. Uh, so I think I can situate you know my answer in. Uh, some of the different approaches that people take to understand kind of what makes the Putin system tick. And some people emphasize information manipulation and propaganda and, you know, the ability of the Kremlin to kind of pull the wool over the eyes of the average Russian citizen. And obviously that, you know, plays an important role uh, in shaping, you know, public opinion broadly, particularly on areas where people don't have a lot of information, like, foreign policy, whereas in domestic politics, it's much harder uh, because uh, it's hard to convince Russians that the economy is doing well when they see prices going up uh, and the refrigerator looking a little more bare. Uh, Other people emphasize great power status and that there's something about Putin's ability to return Russia to to the world stage that really makes Russia tick. And there's a lot to this Russia is an unusual autocracy in that it does have this huge global footprint. Um, and there's you know, certainly something to that, a lot of good work on that. There's also work you know, by Sam Green uh, and Graham Robertson about you know, that there are uh, strong bases of social support for Putin that have been co-constructed by uh, the regime so that, you know, the Putin regime is more than just information manipulation and repression, but it also, you know, appeals to some values and interests of, of sectors within uh, a Russian uh, society. Uh, you know, my, my one of the points I want to emphasize in the book is that another thing that's important is simple performance. Uh, I mean, one of the key features of Putin's first two years in power and key factor that allowed him to consolidate power as a personalist autocrat. And we often look back now and assume that that was the natural, uh, you know, end point for where Russia was headed. But if you look at the, you know, period 2000 to 2008, it was far from certain. And, uh, you know, the, the, during Putin's first two terms in office, the size of the economy doubled and poverty fell and liver, living standards soared. Uh, so, you know, regardless of Putin's KGB background and his judo and his, you know, publicity stunts, uh, the regime performed really well for, for most Russian citizens during that period and his approval rating soared. Uh, you know, they began to fall, uh, as growth began to come down a little bit. Then we have the annexation of Crimea, a big foreign policy success, again, an example of good performance from the eyes. Of most Russians, and again his popularity ratings soar. Um, and then the last five years, you know, uh, we've seen the economy stagnant. Living standards are lower today than they were a decade ago. Uh, foreign policy successes are much harder to come by. Uh, there are no new Crimea's uh, waiting in the wings. Um, corruption remains, you know, a big uh, problem. Trust in government uh, is still very low. Uh, so we've seen. Putin, who previously could rely on strong performance and high levels of personal popularity in order to legitimate his rule in the eyes of many Russians, you know, having to turn much more to the stick and to restricting political activities and uh, political rights and using repression—a uh, process which has really accelerated in the last year with these attempts to kind of uproot. The, uh, uh, the political opposition, you know, down to the, uh, uh, you know, uh, down to the core. So um, uh, I think the factor about Russian politics and Putin's regime that has been underplayed somewhat is just the sheer ability of the government to deliver for its citizens. And that has varied a lot over time.
0: Yeah. Th- I, I, let me ask you uh, something about this, because this is an idea that I that's been swimming around my head for a while now in the sense that in, in some respects, one could see Putin as a victim of his own success, because in the 2000s, when you had this booming economy, it, it incredibly transformed Russia in, in a really incredible, rapid way. I mean, just going there, you know, after being going there and then going there a couple of years later, the transformation was is unbelievable. Uh, and at that time, you know, Putin could rely on playing on the memories of the 1990s, right? But now expectations are different, right? People's expectations, and particularly for a younger generation that didn't, you know, have this the same experience of the 1990s, their formative years are those boom years to 2000s. So, in what ways are is the regime trying to manage that, and and especially? Trying to justify its continued existence and delivering a a future for for Russia's citizens.
2: Yeah, I, I quipped recently that uh, you know Russian political discourse has been reduced in in, in recent years to a, ni- a noun, a verb, and 1990s were horrible, uh, which, <laughs> uh, which is a play on you know Joe Biden's comment about uh, Rudy Giuliani's um, campaign of uh, you know being a noun, a verb, and 9/11. Um, so we I, I think the the uh younger generation uh has, and you can see this in the public opinion data, have very different levels of support for Putin and very different expectations. I mean, I see it in the in the students that I work with at the, at the, at the higher school um uh, of economics. and it really is a challenge because I think one of the factors that has uh, hurt the Putin administration, I think, in the last four or five years is the lack of a clear message about, uh, you know, uh, what their formula for le- legitimating their rule is. It was easy when the economy was booming, when uh, the Crimean annexation, uh, you know, allowed Russia return to a global stage. But for example, if you look at public opinion data on Russia's assertive foreign policy, It's not very popular. Uh, uh, Support for Russian intervention in Syria among the mass public has never held uh, much support. Um, And, you know, uh, majorities would like to see Russian troops come back from Syria. Uh, Support for uh, Russian intervention directly into eastern Ukraine has never been very popular. Even in 2015, only about one in three Russians supported or more or less supported the introduction of russian troops into eastern ukraine Uh, and of course the kremlin's attempts to uh, cover up uh, their activities in eastern ukraine also give you some sense that they recognize that their position there uh, is unpopular reunification with belarus uh, is been su- supported by about one in five Russians. And what the, what the public opinion says is that when we're forced to make a trade-off between devoting resources to, you know, defending Russia's global position and developing the Russian economy, you know, Russian citizens, you know, by majorities uh, prefer uh, the latter rather than uh, the former. Uh, and Putin has played on, you know, uh, two key themes to uh, uh, assert Russia's uh, global power, uh, uh, superpower status among uh, the Russian uh, populace, uh, and it's primarily World War II and the kind of scientific achievements of the Soviet period, rather than uh, you know Russia's uh, interventions in you know the Central African Republic or Syria or even in uh, or even in the Arctic. So Russian public likes the superpower status, but they associate it more with World War II and the space program than they do with Putin's foreign policy.
0: Now, there are some analysts who uh who see Russia under Putin as a um a pleb I can see if I can say this right, uh, a plebiscitary regime, right? The 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 population is constantly polled. Uh elections the, uh you know f- form a, a a means of legitimizing the the ruling party united russia but also the putin's putin himself and the system he, he he governs and how do you see the function of these these polls and some of the problems with them and and elections what function do they play
2: so uh, it's much better to be a popular autocrat than an unpopular one uh and the Kremlin recognizes this, and they are by far the biggest purchaser of public opinion data uh, in Russia. I, I've done a lot of polls in Russia over the last, uh, you know, 25 or so years, and uh, uh, you know the Kremlin is really very active in, in trying to figure out what's going on with public opinion. Uh, um, so they obviously think that uh, it is important, and uh, you know, public opinion in, in Russia has been actually quite good relative to other uh, autocracies. Um, now, there's something that's strange that's been going on, though, recently, uh, in my view. So, for a long time, you know, Putin has had these very impressive uh, popularity ratings, approval ratings. And my colleagues and I in 2015 did a study where we tried to figure out whether or not respondents were lying when they answered this question. You know, it's a common question about doing polls in autocracy. And we, we used a common method in survey research to try to figure this out that I explain in the book. And we found that we couldn't rule out the possibility that people were telling the truth. Uh, that is that the polls about Putin's approval ratings uh, were more or less accurate. And at the same time, people expressed high levels of trust uh, in Putin. Uh, What we've seen in the last four years is that while Putin's approval ratings have been pretty steadily in the the mid 60s, uh, when asked uh, by pollsters from the Levada Center and by PSYOM as well um, to name politicians that they trust, uh, uh, Putin's uh, level of trust. Uh, ratings have fallen from around the mid-60s to the low-30s. So people are much less willing to offer up Putin's name as a figure that they trust in politics than they were four years ago. So that split in these two measures of Putin's uh, 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 approval ratings or trust ratings. tells me that something is really going on in how people uh relate uh, uh relate uh, to Putin and that it's likely that uh you know his popularity ratings is lower than what the uh approval ratings um a- actually say
0: so far we've been talking mostly about you know Putin's relationship with the general public right the electorate what about his relationship with the, the middle layers, the, the businessmen, politicians within Russia, various group interests, people within his own circle? How, how do you understand that relationship?
2: So, you know, it's not well uh, remembered, uh, but in, per- in Putin's first uh, four years in office, there were working groups on every issue under the sun from bank reform to pension reform to tax reform, regulatory reform. Uh, And there was a lot of involvement of the expert community in drafting legislation and advising the government. And one of the thing that's been interesting for me to see uh, primarily through my colleagues at the Higher School of Economics and through other scholarly communities I know, is that how over time that relationship uh, has just almost disappeared. Uh, whereas in, you know, the first four or eight years of Putin's rule, uh, when, uh, you know, uh, I, I was occasionally in meetings where, uh, you know, somebody would say, oh, I have to leave because I have to go advise, uh, you know, somebody in the presidential administration on this legislation on, uh, you know, uh, the state procurement system. Uh, and now I think those calls are made less frequently, and I think you know when those calls are made, people pick up uh, much less frequently. So that Putin, the input and the flow of information that's going into uh, late Putin compared to early Putin is much more filtered. It's much narrower, um, and likely the the, the quality uh, has suffered as well. Um, you know. Thinking about it in broader terms, Putin's, you know, uh, one of his great successes has been his ability to manage uh, relations among the different competing groups um, with interests that are, you know, in direct conflict uh, with each other and to be seen as a broker among uh, these different interests. And one of the things that allows him to play that role is that he's very popular and there's no other replacement figure who could immediately boast of the levels of popularity that Putin has. Uh, and that makes it uh, you know, more difficult, I think, for uh, potential rivals among the elite to try to build a coalition um, against him. So in this way, uh, you know, should Putin's approval rating drop a lot his ability to claim among his inner circle that he is the one that can you know solve the problem of the narod uh uh, that would just be much less uh convincing so this is a a kind of another way in which these two problems of managing the inner circle and managing the mass public uh intersect
0: Do, do you feel that the hollowing out of the you know legitimate politics right in vis-a-vis the the presidential administration's understanding of what is legitimate politics because it seems now and as you just said that even the politics that are kind of you know that were present 15 years ago are are gone like i remember when there was discussion of various discussion clubs within united russia and that hasn't been the case for many years now is this part of the process of of consolidating The autocracy that you're talking about.
2: Uh, Yes, I think you know what we've seen is uh, the huge financial resources that the Kremlin amassed during that you know period 2000 to 2010 um, has allowed them to really um, uh, consolidate power in a narrow uh, group of, of individuals. Uh, uh, in a way that, you know, I think we that needs to be explained better rather than just assumed, as I think uh, uh, it, it often is, because many autocrats try to consolidate power in their own hands and are thwarted uh, either because there are parties that can challenge or organizations within the state like the military uh, uh, that can challenge them. And, you know, as Putin's ability to deliver uh, on the economy and on foreign policy um, and generate uh, kind of legitimate support, not just among the mass public, but also among you know, the middle level managers and the state bureaucrats and the business people, opinion leaders um, um, in Russia you know, has declined. Uh, he has become more dependent, uh, it appears, on uh, the security services. And we've seen, you know, increasing influence of the security services, particularly the FSB, Uh, also increasing perks for uh, the National Guard, legislation that makes it a crime to reveal information about the, you know, property holdings of uh, security officials. Um, You know, these all seem to be evidence of this growing influence of the security block and... You know, their ability to kind of wall off politics in Russia from all of these other uh, popular forces that used to be, you know, part of the political equation, uh, you know, 10, 15 uh, years ago.
0: Now, you've spoken a little bit about uh, Russia's role on the global stage and and the attempts to manage this. Um, I'd like to have you talk a bit more about this because, you know, Russia has been more present You know in the last decade uh, beginning really with the the war with georgia the short war with georgia and then ukraine crimea ukraine and syria and also the increasing you know direct confrontation between russia and the so-called west talk more about the role russia's international relations play uh for this regime
2: yeah for me the foreign policy chapter was the hardest one to write uh, because the key themes in the book are that we can learn a lot about Russia by looking at other personalist autocracies and that Russia has a lot in common with other autocracies. But in international politics, Russia is a pretty unusual autocracy. It has you know, nuclear weapons, it has a seat at the United Nations, it has this big global footprint, it has this history of uh, uh, of being a great power. Um, also, you know, another theme in the book is that we need to look beyond Putin to understand how he interacts with different elements in uh, the bureaucracy and in society. But in foreign policy, in every country, the leader plays uh, an outsized role. And also just, you know, foreign policy is a huge topic. So to to cover it all in a chapter uh, was a challenge. So, I mean, one of the I make in the book is that in foreign policy, Putin faces a similar trade off to one that he faces on the domestic front, in that an assertive foreign policy, uh, one that emphasizes uh, you know, uh, Russia's military, its hard power, uh, one that you know, tries to kind of rewrite the rules of international uh, relations using uh, things uh, like uh, cyber uh, uh, and, and other um, kind of uh, innovative uh, and unconventional uh, uh, techniques. Um, uh, uh, so it was uh, you know it was a challenge to, to 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 write to write this chapter. But the 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 tradeoff that I want to identify is that. Um, This assertive foreign policy contradicts Putin's other goal, which is to build up the Russian economy as a way to build up not just his own power, but to uh, reward specific groups within Russian society. So uh, the assertive foreign policy tends to reward those groups who are least interested in developing a more robust, competitive, innovative, knowledge-based economy Uh, uh, that is within the grasp of uh, Russians, um, but when the main beneficiaries of foreign policy are the security services, state-owned enterprises, you know, uh, uh, agriculture um, uh, through the import substitution policies uh, and the uh, way that, you know, Russian foreign policy has generated sanctions Uh, that has further isolated uh, the russian economy made it more difficult to develop an innovative economy Um, uh, this uh, trade-off is uh, apparent not just in domestic politics but also uh, in foreign policy as well
0: um is there something that you know when you were writing the book something you came across that you found Quite maybe odd or strange or unfamiliar to you that you wanted to include in the book, but it, you just couldn't fit it in.
2: Yeah, I, I had a couple of things. One was I had a, a an extended version of the critique of Putinology uh, in in one of the early chapters of the book that looked at all of the uh, kind of metaphors that people have used to refer to Putin. You know. I, there's always this thing about Russian leaders' eyes. You know, I looked into Putin's eyes and I saw this. I looked into, Bush, you know, Bush said I looked into Putin's eyes and I saw this. Um, and, I, and I riffed on that for a while. And one of the, the interesting tidbits I came across was this reference to Putin as a chess master. You know, Putin's playing chess and we're playing checkers. I had a bunch of quotes from uh, politicians and analysts uh, in, in the West. And uh, uh, well, first of all, Putin's you know much more interested in judo and hockey than chess. He's not never shown much interest in chess. Uh, the other interesting tidbit is uh, there's been a lot of research done on whether the skills developed uh, playing chess translate into other arenas, uh, and it seems pretty clear that. The evidence says no. Uh, that being great uh, on the 64 squares is no uh, guarantee that you are, uh, you know, uh, able to solve, you know, logic problems or that you have some, you know, great insights uh, beyond chess. And it kind of makes sense when you think of, you know, uh, uh, Bobby Fischer was a great chess player, but I wouldn't want him designing my foreign policy. So that was that was kind of one bit that I just couldn't squeeze into the book. Also, I had a bunch more experiences as an exhibit guide, um, including one in uh, um, uh, uh, one in, uh, in in Tashkent, where uh, these Crimean Tatars who had been um, uh, you know been coming to the coming to the exhibit, uh, 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 you know, um, well actually let, let let's not get into that. That's just a long long boring story. Let me just leave it at that. So.
0: Um yeah, I, I find this stuff really fascinating too. Like the various kind of tropes and discourses around Putin in particular, right? The looking into like you mentioned, a looking into the eyes, looking for a soul. Uh the the whole uh, discourse of Putin is winning is another
2: one that I really like. Oh yes. Um and, and yes. it's it's Putin the one I like, sorry no, to interrupt, sure. is um well, you know, you'll hear arguments like we need to support Ukraine, which I do research in Ukraine, it's very important to support the, you know, democracy and better governance in Ukraine. But sometimes you hear arguments that we need to support Ukraine because you know, Russia is so much more powerful than Ukraine and has a military advantage. Um, and Russia is, when Russia is strong, we need to support Ukraine. And then when you know, things go south in Moscow, you know, you'll hear this refrain of, we need to support Ukraine because Russia is weak. And when it's weak, it's even more dangerous. And wait a minute, so one of these things, uh, you know, you have to come down on one side or another um, and those kinds of arguments. uh, uh, And and we also need to bear in mind that the Kremlin is constantly trying to shape this notion that Putin is winning, uh, uh, that Putin is all powerful. um, And that's a, you know, a refrain that the Kremlin, you know, relies on and cultivates uh, so, uh, you know, we need to be careful that in our uh, great debate about whether, you know, great uh, individuals make history or whether history makes individuals great, I think in our discussion of Russia, we've really gone too far in the, uh, in the, in the direction of putting emphasis on Putin's individual agency without taking into account the circumstances in which he operates
0: yeah I find it is it's it's an interesting irony where we're actually playing into and contributing to
2: the Putin cult. that was one of the reasons for writing the book was to try to you know try to look beyond Putin and you know working in Russia as I have for for so long, uh, you know, you see just so much more of the um disparate interest trying to influence policy. and we also need to remember that you know, Putin is governing a country of, you know, 146 million people, spreads across 11 time zones. He's not doing this himself. Uh, So, you know, how he manages and builds coalitions uh, in order to, uh, you know, pursue policy agendas, whether they're personal enrichment or, you know, improving living standards somewhere, uh, we need to unpack those relationships and understand them, rather than just assuming because, you know, Putin wanted something to happen and it happened, uh, that Putin was the main driver behind it. Felix, would you like to jump in?
1: Yeah, this is actually a perfect segue into the next question. Um, So... I'm interested in hearing what your thoughts are on this. Uh, You know, Russia has for such a long time been a country that scholars, journalists, and et cetera have been trying to quote unquote understand. And we speak about it in a way that we don't speak about pretty much any other nation. Um, So what is it about Russia that is this uh, perpetual mystery in need of deciphering?
2: So, you know, for me, uh, you know, my first trip abroad was to Moscow in 1985 during my junior year at uh, Middlebury college and spent, you know, I spent five months at the Pushkin Institute and
0: baptism by fire. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You know uh, you know, when I think of uh, my only communication apart from snail mail was to uh, order a international phone call uh, that cost Uh, $10 a minute, and I had to go to a special, you know, telephone, telegraph in another part of Moscow um, uh, to make the call, Uh, you know, you you just recognize how much uh, more integrated Russia became very quickly. Uh, You know, by the early 90s, you know, we were sending faxes back and forth across. So, yes, it was a period where uh, you know, Russia was really walled off and the notion of, you know, meeting an American uh, was really unique. And, you know, even when I was on the exhibit, um, you know, for most people, we were the first Americans that they had ever met. And that was part of the uh, part of the attraction. But for me, as a social scientist, Russia is the gift that keeps on giving, I mean if you if you're interested in politics and markets and how they interact in coercion about the bluffs of politics I mean Russia is a fascinating case and as I mentioned it's been a good place to to study uh, autocracy and I use a line in the book where I say you know I sometimes I feel like Michael Corleone, where you know, I want to get away from studying Russia and do other topics, but I keep getting uh, pulled back in. So for me, that is uh, the big draw. I mean, I think the general interest in Russia comes from several sources. Thank God for Russian language and literature. I mean, this is what keeps people flowing into the field Is we suck them in as undergraduates with Tolstoy and Chekhov and Dostoevsky and they become interested in the place. And, uh, you know, that allows a kind of continuing interest in trying to uh, understand Russia. You know,
1: I do have to say that is exactly what happened to me. me,
2: I was a Russian language and literature (laughs) major as an undergraduate. So um, when we continue uh, uh, to see that, um, there's also obviously the the Cold War uh, influence of, Trying to understand Russia and the amount of resources devoted to trying to understand, you know, the Soviet Union and um, uh, and it was also the, the the mystery of Russia was also helped because it was really hard to study Soviet politics. Uh, you know, I have a line in the book where I say, you know, some Sovietologists did a lot with a little and some did a little with a little, but they were all working with a little. And uh, you know, fortunately, in the '90s and the 2000s, we've had this, you know, relatively high-quality administrative data that the Russian government produces. We've had these very strong uh, Russian scholars um, who are an incredibly important part of our uh, 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 of the community um, that you know didn't really exist back in the uh, the Soviet period. There was there was much more of a a, a divide between you know. Uh, Scholars based in the Soviet Union um, and, and and other scholars. and this I think allowed a lot of you well know, inaccuracies or misperceptions to develop uh, about um, uh, the Soviet Union and about you know Russia um, just because it is it's a pretty difficult place uh, to study. and you have a government now who is very interested in making it. Uh, 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 you know, in trying to shape the narrative about Russian politics. So that makes it um, another challenge. In writing the book, though, I I pictured it as an explainer book, which tried to use social science research on elections, the economy, coercion, um, in an attempt to lower the temperature around how we talk about Russia, you know, in that I think... Russia is you know somewhat unique in the way we're constantly trying to understand it. Um, I also think the the level of debate, uh, uh, the the heatedness of debate uh, about Russia, I think, is probably a lot higher than it is about other really interesting countries like Turkey, Brazil, uh, Iran. Um, uh, and part of the attempt in this book was to say, look, let's get the best evidence we have out there that scholars have tried to collect on issues of importance and translate it for a general audience.
0: Finally, we Russia's parliamentary elections in September you know there's the 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 hanging question of 2024 uh is Putin going to continue and he's they already have the constitutional you know framework for that for him to perpetuate his rule uh we've seen in the last several months a a marked increase in in political repression uh to kind of control the politics of Russia which of course reflects a lot of anxiety I think, on the part of uh, of the government, on what's going to happen with the parliamentary elections, I'm sure, you know, 20, the 2011 is still is hanging over their head. So what are some of the things that and then, of course, there's the international relations which continue to deteriorate, it seems. But maybe it's kind of cooled off a little bit since Biden and Putin met. What, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking for or look paying attention to it as as we move forward?
2: The September elections I think are really important because they mark a vast departure from past elections. Whereas in the past, the Kremlin tried hard to uh, gain uh, what we might call honest votes. That is, they worked hard to recruit candidates uh, that could deliver, uh, to persuade people that United Russia uh, was worthy of being returned to office, given the options uh, that uh, people face that are obviously limited by uh, uh, the Kremlin, and that you know Putin could make personal appeals to get people you know out to vote and, and to support uh, the cause, and you know in this mix of kind of uh, uh, kind of co- coercive methods. And what we might call, uh, you know, more popular methods, you know, the Kremlin relied more on these kind of popular methods to legitimate its rule rather than on coercion. And but what we see in the preparation for the September uh, uh, 2021 elections is really severe restrictions on uh, the real opposition rather than the systemic opposition. I saw this week that uh, the Video cameras that have been put in every polling place in response to the claims of fraud in the 2011 elections will not be made available to the broader public, only to candidates. And you know, just the uprooting of Navalny's whole organization, you know, indicates that these elections are going to be much less useful to the Kremlin as a tool for. Legitimating its rule, and that I think is a big departure from the past, where elections had been a useful tool to try to divide the opposition, to you know rally support for uh, uh, for the government, and it does you know indicate this kind of uh, uh, anxiety. I mean, some of the things I'll be looking for is what happens with the economy, and um, you know when you know the oil prices, you know, we're in a period where it's likely we're going to get some global economic growth and this might push push oil prices up a bit and it might be the kind of respite um, that helps Putin solve some of these legitimacy problems and performance-related problems um, uh, that he's been having. Um, and uh, regards to, to 2024, I'm not sure that Putin even knows right now uh, what, he, what, he, um, you know, what his plans are. If you remember one of the reasons why he introduced the constitutional amendments that would allow him to stay in power, it was because he had already seen jockeying among different cliques uh, uh, and he wanted to put a stop to that. Uh, So even four years prior uh, to him having to face a term limit, you know, the jockeying had already begun and he saw that this was going to be uh, a detrimental. So whatever he decides, he'll probably do it, uh, you know, pretty uh, late uh, in, in, um, in his term. One point, you know, that we see is that Russia is a really interesting case because it compels us to evaluate two of our uh, you know, favorite hypotheses about regime transitions in comparative politics. So, on the one hand, uh, personalist autocracies like Putin's Russia um, tend not to uh, transition to more open, competitive uh, uh, regimes. They they do so at a much slower rate than military regimes or one-party uh, regimes. Um, on the other hand, you know, Russia is a well-educated country. It's an urban country. It's relatively uh, homogeneous. You know, more than 80% Russian, um, and the you know ethnic divides are are not what we see in a lot of uh, other countries. Uh, it's relatively uh, well off uh, in terms of uh, you know how democratic or open it could be politically. Um, income inequality is high, but it's certainly on the order of Brazil, Argentina, and lots of Latin American countries where, you know, democracies with all their problems uh, have been operating now uh, for decades. So we have these two competing views of what we should expect uh, in a post-Putin Russia. And it's going to be fascinating to see which of these two uh, uh, theories wins out.
1: That was Timothy Fry. Timothy Fry is the Marshall D. Shulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy and co-director of the International Center for the Study of Institutions and Development at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He is the author of many books on post-Soviet Russia. His new book is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, published by Princeton University Press.
0: So Felix, we just listened to this interview with Timothy Fry about his book, Weak Strongman. Uh, What are some of the the takeaways that you walked away with?
1: So I was really interested in his uh, accounts of going to the Soviet Union as a kind of cultural ambassador uh, and the experiences that he had there, Uh, particularly because I think it, it gets at something that I think often gets lost in American conversations about the Soviet Union and Russia, which is that. There were, you know, there are people living there, the same as there are people living here who have questions about the same kinds of things that people here have questions about life over there. Um, So it was humanizing. Uh, And I just, I feel like that's extremely important to emphasize in this kind of work. Um, Apart from that, I think also that he, did a really good job of explaining that Putin is not the end-all be-all to the Russian political system. Um, and that even in, even in something that is, uh, for example, like something that, that would, could be called like an absolute dictatorship, you know? Um, even in that kind of system, uh, the leader only has control to a certain extent because they have to negotiate with other stakeholders in the project, you know, um, and so like bureaucratic institutions or other officials or people in the periphery, uh, and and these all have their own agendas and motivations as well. So, I, I think in addition to the the kind of humanizing aspect of the cultural ambassador story, this is important to remember with Putin as well that he has control to an extent
0: that also adds to a humanizing element to the russian political system as well because you know putin is arguably the most powerful person in the country nobody disputes that but nevertheless he has to engage in politics right he has to manage and, and kind of juggle all of these various interests and and like as you said his his control is is circumscribed um, it, it has limits, as as Timothy Fry, you know, puts it in his his title of his book. And uh, one of the things I really liked in the interview is uh, Fry mentions this quote from uh, Nikita Khrushchev, where he compares the Soviet Union or the Soviet system like a a, a a ball of dough. Like every time you you stretch it or punch down on it or try to change it in some way, it kind of like goes back to its shape. Um, and I thought this was a great a great image. Because, you know, those of us, you know, like yourself and myself and others who study, you know, Russia and the Soviet Union, um, the limits of the system is something that we confront all the time. Uh, And it really does, I think, dash in the face of a lot of our, you know, our own assumptions, you know, even those of us who are well versed in the ins and outs of of that society i think still come to it and have to be reminded quite constantly that it really doesn't come down to the the magic and power of one individual but that there's a very complex system going on there
1: absolutely it is uh it's not great man theory we're working with
0: yeah yeah and and i but i and i do have to say though the fact that this has to be reiterated so often in, in many respects, you know, points to the very problem that you you began with and that, you know, the attempts to understand uh, Russian society, you know, rarely, at least in the public consciousness, rarely gets beyond that great man understanding of, you know, the way the world works.
1: Absolutely. And it is a detriment to our interactions with Russia as a country, I would say. so.
0: Well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. You've been listening to the SRB podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Uh, if you like this podcast, please share it on your various social media platforms and take some time to tell us what you think. Uh, about the podcast and what we're doing or what we're not doing or what doesn't work for you. We'd like to hear your feedback. And as always, if you like the SRB podcast, we'd love your support. Uh, The SRB podcast and all its various goings on is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free and free from advertisements and paywalls and all sorts of barriers to the free flow of knowledge. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a monthly patron by joining the SRB Table of Ranks. Until next week, bye.